All right, I've got to say it. I've got to admit this up front. There are some people in this world who are trashy people. And you've seen this a lot when you're dealing with people who are trying to dissuade you from the truth that you know. You know, you guys have heard about God. You guys have heard about Jesus and salvation and everything that goes along with that. You've heard about faith. You've been given reasons to believe. You've seen all these things happen in many instances. And yet, somebody comes along peddling a tale, telling you a, a fable, spinning you a little story that you decide to believe instead. You know what? There are people who lie. And so we're called not to follow them. We're supposed to follow God, God, the truth. And when we do that, we have some certain things to look forward to. We're getting into 1 John chapter 3 this week. Sorry about last week not uploading anything. Uh, I decided to get sick last week, and so my voice was not feeling up to more presentation than anything. And on the day that I would have recorded this, I was having difficulty trying to um, breathe without coughing, and so I figured it would be better to just skip a week instead of trying to upload something, and thank you for bearing with me. Now we're jumping into chapter 3 of 1 John, in which we find this instance where we're talking about being close to God and family with God and being God's children— as those who love the truth, as those who investigate what the truth is, as those who dedicate themselves to the Lord, we can have some confidence in that. But that confidence that we have is going to look a little bit different than you might think, and maybe as you're reading through this, it actually might shake your confidence a little bit. I think it should. As we're reading, uh, let's go through 1 John chapter 3. Let's start in verse 1. We're going to read down through verse 10, a little bit of a bigger section than I've been doing, but it all changed together. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because he, we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother or sister. And there at the end, you'll see a transition into the love section. We're talking about light and love and life. God being all of those things, we're about to transition into that section on love and God being love and, and how that works and how that is epitomized. 
And so really, as you overview the section, you kind of see that idea. Go back to verse 1, you see this picture. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children. God loves us, leading us to be called his children in verse 1. And the proof of that childship in verse 10, this is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially those who don't love. And so proof of childship is that we love others. God loved us. That makes us his children. Our proof of being God's children is that we love other people as God loved us. Those bookend this section in verses 1 and 10, connecting this idea of God and his children and their relationship with love. But before we can talk about the full extent of that love and where that goes, we have to talk about this idea that we are God's children. Firstly, you can break this section down into three different sections, verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, and 7 through 10, talking about being God's children, just the fact that we are. The second section, talking about purity, and the third section, just an over-encompassing view of how God's children are counted. You start by considering the fact in verse 1 that we are God's children. This is one of the most interesting and impactful verses in the New Testament. We don't really think about it because it's in 1 John, and who covers 1 John, right? Who, who even reads this book ever? But think about this in verse 1. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called God's children, and we are. I love how CSB puts that and how, how it's framed in the English that they use. Not only are we called God's children, but in fact, we are God's children. And that's a really minute point to make, but that's a really important point to make. Because I can call something, you know, for example, I can call a particular book or show or game or whatever it is, I can call something bad. That doesn't mean it's objectively bad. That might mean that I don't like it or I don't personally jive with it. But that does not mean that it is bad. In the same way, I can call uh, one of my friends, I call him brother. We are not physical brothers. We are not siblings. We are just friends. And yet I call him brother. I name him that even though that's not technically correct. I could call myself a child of God. Anyone could call me a child of God and label me in that way. But it doesn't actually mean anything unless it's true. John here puts the, the weight of the idea in we are called God's children and we are God's children. There's a very definite statement on that. We are God's children. As such, we are not of the world, but we are of God. We don't fit in with other people because we are from God. As such, because we are from God, because we are his family— we have a hope in him, in verse 3. We have a hope in, in, in family, in this family connection of father and child, of being under God for eternity, and then some. 
we have hope in him. And so everyone with that hope is driven to end up acting righteously in verses 2 and 3. We don't know, like, we're God's children now, but we don't know how that's going to look in the future. And so we purify ourselves just like he is pure. You are called God's children by all sorts of different people, yourselves, your churches, the various other congregations in the area, maybe even people who don't know God personally, they might still label you in this way. They call you as Christians, whether that's compliment or insult. They'll label you in this particular way. But you are not just called that, you embody that. As such, you are to act righteously, and that's exactly what he goes into in verses 4 through 6. We purify ourselves like he is pure. That is just our aim, right? And he, and John contrasts this in verse 4 with this picture of people who sin. Sin and practice lawlessness, lawlessness taking us away from God. So you have this picture here of sin that takes us away from God, but God, on the other hand, he wants us with himself. Therefore, in verse 5, you know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Sin takes us away from God. God wants us back with him. And so, <coughs> sorry, and so in verse 5, I'm getting excited in my voice here and it's hurting. And so in verse 5, we're talking about he who comes and he who is revealed. God, or in this case, Jesus, but John's language kind of conflates the two. They are the same. They fulfill slightly different roles, but they're both involved in the work of saving mankind. God came to remove your sin, and God came to bring righteousness. And so the result of that righteousness is, in verse 6, that everyone who remains in him does not sin, and everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. There's a promise in verse 6. It's a very clear promise. If you are with God, if you remain in him, you will not sin. That is definitively stated. If you are with God, you won't sin. If you are with God, you will not sin. Problem is, if you do sin... That is a proof that you are not with God. That's a proof that you don't know God, and that's a proof that you are not on his side. And therefore, we run into a bit of a difficulty, don't we? Because whenever we talk about humanity, it's kind of an understood that humans sin, right? A lot of the preaching and teaching I grew up with was based on this simple fact that humans sin sometimes, and of course you can always be forgiven, uh, and that means that we're not going to be perfect on this earth, and so we just kind of do our best, and we kind of try to improve, and if we ever mess up, well, we turn around and do better. But John's conclusion is that anytime you sin, you are showing that you are not faithful, that you are not with God, Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. If you sin, you have not seen God. You don't understand him. You don't know him. You don't have a relationship. 
If you sin, you are not God's child. And that's a pretty intense claim. For all the teaching that I've had growing up in 21st century America, we claim a lot of things about God. I want to be careful in how I word this. We say a lot of things about who God is, about how forgiving he is, about how merciful he is. And those things are true. God is forgiving and merciful. Any sin you can be forgiven from, I believe that wholeheartedly. Any evil that you do, you, if you come back to God, God will forgive you and bring you to himself. You can be redeemed and turned into a child of God at any point. But in the emphasis that we've had on mercy, we forget to emphasize God's perfect judgment. Judgment that is coming to eradicate sin. Judgment has dis that decided that sin was not acceptable. And that even one sin condemns. Even one sin condemns you very fully. And any time we sin, we are separated from God. There's this question, how do we balance those ideas of mercy and justice? Unfortunately, our modern thinking has tended to err on the side of mercy rather than justice. Maybe that's good, and maybe it's not. But as a result, we don't even give consideration to these passages, and oftentimes we don't remember these passages exist. Because what John is about to say is incredibly demanding. Look at verses 7 and 8 and 9 as kind of a, a wrap-up and a culmination of this chapter. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. In verse 6, that's what we have. And then John says this, Children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. Don't be deceived. People are going to want to tell you other things, but the one who does what is right is righteous. Contrast that in verse 8. The one who commits sin is of the devil. Contrast this again in verse 9, pairing up with verse 7 again. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin. So you have two passages, two verses here, that emphasize the doing of right and the righteousness therein. And you have that one verse in the middle in verse 8 that talks about he who commits sin. Notice that language. The, the one who does what is right versus the one who commits sin. When we talk about righteousness, it's a, a, an interesting concept. Righteousness is a state of being. Most often we talk about righteousness being a way of life, and you can live in a righteous way, but righteousness is fundamentally, or oftentimes, a state of being. God is righteous. That is, he always does what is right. We are supposed to be righteous. That is, we always do what is right. Unfortunately, what happens when you're a human is you get dragged aside and you get tempted to do something that's not right, and all of us, at one point or another, Make a willing choice and give in and choose evil. And we commit sin. 
that means we are no longer righteous because we have not always done what is right. One sin ruins your streak of righteousness. Righteousness is that state of being, and as John says in verse 8, the Son of Man is revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's works. What is the devil's work? It's to take that streak of righteousness and implant a sin in it that breaks that record and makes us less than perfect, makes us less than righteous, makes us less than good because Jesus knows, Satan knows that Jesus is coming for a reason, to destroy everything that has been tainted by that, that's been ruined by the devil and that's been corrupted by his evil. And so he's come to destroy all those who have broken their streak of righteousness. Jesus came to purify in verses 5 and 6, right? People who, he, he came to them, he was revealed to take away their sins. He came to purify nicely, but in the end he's going to come back to purify violently and destroy all of those who have broken their righteousness who've destroyed what was perfect and instead taken part in what was evil. That's why Jesus came, right? That's a really important point. That's why Jesus came in the first place, is to come down to earth to give himself so that his sacrifice can cover our sin so that we can have this righteous record again so that we can have a new life, so that we can be reset, and so that we don't have to live in the past with that burden of sin on us, but that we can live perfectly. And we can be perfect in this new life as God's child because everyone who has been born of God does not sin. His seed remains in him. He is not able to sin. The question is, do we do what's right? And do we not sin? Or have we ever picked sin? John's statement here is very strong. If we are God's children, we will not ever sin. This is how God's children and the devil's children become obvious. If we sin, Ever, it becomes obvious who our Father is. It can't be God because God doesn't sin. If we sin, we are not children of God. And so he's ultimately going to fall into this, to this familiar rhythm that the way we do these things is to fulfill the greatest commands, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? Dedicate yourself to God first. That's what this section is about. And then love your neighbor as yourself, which is where he goes in the end of verse 10 and where he goes for the rest of chapter 3, to love your, your neighbor, to love other people. And everything will work if you fulfill those commands, but you have to fulfill those commands. Ultimately, when it comes down to it, We've got a couple problems in our modern day. In the way that teaching is traditionally carried out, we focus a lot on God's, God's mercy and how nice he is. But we miss out on the evil of sin 
And as odd as this sounds, because we all know that sin is bad, right? But we take sin way too lightly today. In the Bible, one sin, one breach of righteousness condemns you to hell. Eve ate a fruit and as a result destroyed the entire world, brought curses onto uh, all of women forever, and, and got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, separated from God physically and spiritually. One breach of righteousness condemns you to hell. God's people, on the other hand, never sin. That's what John says, isn't it? The words are all right there. How are you going to excuse that? How is it that we just ignore that, that God's people do not sin? We make allowances all the time. Oh, we're only human. God's people do not sin. His children are not able to sin. Do we hold ourselves to that standard? No, not usually, not anywhere that I've been. Do we hold ourselves to that standard of perfection? But the Bible is full of this, is full of this idea. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's in Matthew chapter 6, I do believe. We're supposed to present every man complete or perfect in Christ. That's the end of Colossians 1. 1 John is full of it right here. Um, the, those God's people, his children, cannot sin, are not able to. That's just not within their capabilities. Be holy, for I am holy, 1 Peter chapter 2. You see these ideas all throughout Scripture, and yet we make excuses instead of living up to the standard. The fact is God has set a standard. When he came down here to live on earth, God set a standard of living for humans. He set it by his laws in the Old Testament. He set it by his example by doing it in the new, in the gospel accounts that John has even written of before. You have Jesus, the perfect one, who does not sin. And so you have this expectation, but then we hold to stuff like Romans 3, well, all people have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we use that to excuse every sin, every future sin that we're going to commit because we're humans and we just mess up sometimes. And when you do, all you need to do is pray and get better. You know, there's a reason that Hebrews says if we keep sinning after we're baptized, what more sacrifice is there? I believe in God's forgiveness, but I also believe in God's judgment. And there's a balance there that we don't ever hit because we ignore the stuff like these passages. One breach of righteousness condemns me to hell forever. God's people do not sin, ever. And yet, I don't live like it because that's not how I think. Maybe we need to change our thinking and take sin a bit more seriously because God does so much so that he killed himself to help you. And by the way, while we're on the topic of things we take too lightly, have you ever considered your salvation? Because I think we take that way too lightly as well. When we realize this, it's only by realizing the seriousness of sin, really, when we understand how 
terrible our situation is, do we realize exactly what Jesus has done? One sin damns me to hell for eternity, and yet God has forgiven that. And he's forgiven how much of that? He's forgiven how, how many sins of mine? God has cleaned up every single one of them and continues to do so because he is righteous. He, he wants me to be righteous. He sacrificed for me. He wants me to be up to his standard, to be perfect as he is perfect. He has sacrificed to put me up there. How can I not do my best? How can I not pour my heart and soul and every fiber of my being into giving back to him? We take our salvation so lightly sometimes because we don't realize how terrible sin is and we don't realize everything that we need to be doing in response to it. A lot of times we hand wave these things. Oh, you sinned. Oh, that wasn't great. Or, oh, you're forgiven. Oh, I'm glad you're better. Not it, It's not just a question of, oh, I just need to do better this time. It's a question of life and death. We're talking here about eternal damnation, being sent to torture for infinite lifetimes. This is the most extreme life and death scenario ever, and yet we just let it be. And we just wave our hands and say, oh, you've sinned. Oh, you shouldn't do that next time. And But God's forgiven you, and so you're all fine. Maybe we need to have a little bit more of a realistic view of what this is. Maybe we need to read a little bit more of what John has to say. Maybe we need to focus on that and to really feed those thoughts to ourselves. <coughs> it's not about little unfortunate happenings and then, oh, you get better and so that's good. It's about eternal consequences and where you end up forever. It's about living with God versus living against him. It's about being his child and having a relationship where he listens to you and you get to appeal to him and you get to go to him for help and he provides for your every need. If you're God's child who does not sin, Versus none of those things happening if you ever have done evil. Do you realize how serious this thing is? Do you realize how intense this is? I I'm, I'm, don't think I'm speaking too strongly here. That this is the most terrifying and intense thing that's ever existed. This is, as is so often used, this example, because it's such a, a good one. This is a combat between God and evil. This is a combat between what's right and what's not. This is a combat between righteousness and lawlessness. And we are the people on the front lines of it. We're in one of the trenches. Either we're in God's trench with him, working with him, all the blessings that entails, or we're in the devil's trench, working with him and all the curses of that or we're in no man's land where we get shot and left to die. If you're not fully with God, if you're not fully dedicated to him, if you do anything outside of what he set, you are not in his trench. You are not safe. 
You are not protected. You are not provided for. You are in error. But we don't like talking about that because it sounds harsh. Well, guess what? It is harsh, and you have to deal with it. God is merciful, and God is loving, and God has provided a way to purify you from your sin, to be righteous like he is. But he also commands a very strict standard, that you be fully righteous, that you never sin, that you be his child, and you never turn back from that. And if you ever do, you're proving that you are not God's. Whose side are you on? That's the question that John wants to leave us with today. Oh, it's an intense call, but it's worth answering to be on God's side. But maybe we need to hold ourselves to a bit of a higher standard. God is going to judge us in the last day according to these guidelines. So maybe we need to be living our lives right now under these kind of guidelines. Hopefully that's helpful for you to think about. There's so much more and so many specifics as to how that works that I don't necessarily understand. It would be really good for me to talk about, but I don't necessarily understand everything. But hopefully this is a good start for you to start to mull things over in your mind. There's a lot in the Bible about being perfect, about being godly, about being like Jesus, that is sinless, that is perfect, that is righteous, that is good. Do we really hold to that? Or do we try to excuse too much stuff? I think we try to excuse stuff. I don't know. Let me know if you have input on that, and I would love to have a conversation with you. Thanks for listening. Hope you, well, not enjoyed. That's not a very enjoyable thing to think about. Hope you benefited from that and have something to focus on for the rest of today, maybe the rest of this week as you ponder those things. Let me know if you have questions. I would be glad to talk about this subject more. And as always, I'll see you next time. God bless.